don't forgive me if I don't make it through this without crying. As a friend of mine says, tears are the sweat, are like sweat to exercise. Tears are two emotions. And so if they come, we're going to let them come today. We shouldn't stop our emotions from coming. So many stories have come to mind this week as I think about the journey to this place and to these people, what things looked like here 20 years ago. Again, I've told this story and I'm going to tell it again and again. When we were interviewing here and we looked at houses and I think things looked like God was bringing us all together, we'd looked at houses. We hadn't been to the church yet. I had only seen pictures of this building. And again, imagine 72 pews, right? 36 on each side, 14 feet long, marble aisle down the side, you know, the whole thing. We came in the Monument Avenue doors, which there wasn't any glass in, so you couldn't see into the building. So you came to these big wooden doors, imposing doors, and they opened them up, and we came in, and, and Noah's three years old, right? And I don't know whether he's wearing shoes or not. Um, probably not. Child still hates shoes. He came down the side aisle, and there were, there were three marble stairs that went, there was a little marble thing, and then three marble stairs that went up. And he went up the marble stairs, and he just turned around at the very top of the stairs, and he, and he, and he looked up and he said, Oh my God, who lives here? <laughs> little did he know that the Morgan family was going to live here. I mean, in some ways, this has been our home our, for 20 years. Uh, we have cried and laughed, we have sweated, we have bled, literally. <laughs> I've cut my hands on so many things in this place, I can't tell you. But we haven't done it alone. A generation, as I've been saying this week, has risen up, and a generation has fallen away since we have been here. And... Again, there are many stories I could tell. I mean, I came here as a, as a young, I'm still young, much larger human being, actually, about 50 pounds lighter than I was when I came here, if you can believe that. We weathered early on the, the loss and retirement of a 30-year staff member within the first 18 months of my being here. People thought that the congregation would implode without that person's leadership. Little did they know that that might be a catalyst to some other things. That year, we also lost some young people, a mother of some children, to a very strange event, basically an electrical cardiac event. And then... On the first day of school in 2004, if I remember correctly, um, one, of our, one of our young members, who was a, a senior in high school, I think, was murdered. I remember his father coming into my office. In my office, and he comes in, he sits down, and he was, Steve is still a very sort of 
in many ways, when you meet him, a very happy-go-lucky kind of guy. I mean, as an accountant, he's just, you wouldn't think he was an accountant. And he came in and he sat down and, and he just plopped in, you know, and it wasn't unusual, but, you know, a little bit unusual. And I said, hey, just hang on a second. I finished the line of turn and, and, and he said, you know, my son's been murdered. And I was in shock. And this rallied the congregation in a different way. His murder was horrible, tragic. But it brought this congregation together in a very different way. We realized what church was about, and it wasn't about music, and it wasn't about tradition, and it wasn't about anything but serving God and loving one another. We came together to care for each other in a way that I hadn't really seen before because I'd never been part of something like that before. We weathered, um, I'll never forget, a Sunday morning when our organist and choir master calls me on the phone and he says, Joel, um, I've fallen off a ladder this morning and I've broken my arm up here. I can't play anymore about half an hour before worship was to start. <laughs> together, together we, um, God has led us through many things, including recently, over the past five or six years, the renovation of this space. A new, uh, you know, a new worship service, as Patrick talked about, story about Patrick, and I'm rambling, so you just, I hope I have some grace today. I'll never forget Patrick. I was gone one Sunday, and Ray Insko, who, if anybody knows who Ray is, just this very wonderful guy, and he gets, he very much gets involved if he's talking to you, he's, he's just there with you, and Patrick is, is sitting at the piano, and, and in the, in the fellowship hall, and he, Van has played a song, and, and Ray apparently is off in a conversation with somebody. He's supposed to be worshiping, but he's in a conversation with somebody. And Patrick goes, hey, preacher dude, you're up. That's the line that I remember about Patrick. It was sort of our vibe, actually. So after Patrick went on, and here's the thing, I'm such a great leader that um, Patrick was Presbyterian when he was here serving with us. What's he doing now? He's the senior pastor of a Baptist church. Like, where did I go wrong, Jesus? Like, And then we were looking for someone to lead, to lead our band, and I'll never forget, we had some members who are, were in the community, and they'd gone to, I don't know, like a yard sale, right? Gone to a yard sale, and, they, and he called me, he said, I, you know, I met, this, I met this young woman, and I, you know, she's a musician, and she might be right for this. Okay. So Carrie Davis and I meet at the Starbucks, right? And the only Starbucks at that time in, in Carytown. And from the moment I met Carrie, it was like my sister showed up. I mean, the one I like. <laughs> Sorry, Marcia. And Carrie's been, you know, she was part of our, led this, led this group. And here's a little inside joke, peaches and rice. For those of you who know peaches and rice, you'll... That's sorry, I had a little inside joke. 
Carrie led the band and, and brought a, a, a very awesome vibe to it. Carrie also, when we were without a musician in, in this sanctuary, um, she had some organ training. Like, she can play anything, right? Anything. And she played the organ for us, she played the piano for us, she stepped in when we were without a musician. It was, it was amazing. And, and we don't get to see each other as much as, as I would like. I can't speak for her. But I still consider her, you know, just somebody who's very near and dear to my heart. And for you guys to sing that song today... <laughs> Love you. And I've thought about, you know, where we've been as a congregation, but also where we've been as a society and as a country in 20 years. Right before I graduated from seminary, I was at our seminary. We had, we had our, our big worship service once a week on Wednesday, and and usually we brought in dignitaries to, to, to preach for that service. That was our communion Sunday, that was our communion service. And usually we brought in the bishop or we brought in president of another seminary. We brought in some dignitary from some other country or, or whatever. And that, that's who you brought in. But, um, and that was, it was led by these J groups, these groups of students from first year to fourth year. And, and we were the ones who planned all that. We each got a week every year. And, and our advisor looked at the three seniors that were, I think there were three of us, the three seniors that were in that group that, that year. And said, we are not bringing in a dignitary this year. One of you is preaching. I had sworn I would never preach in front of a seminary. Nate probably understands what I might be talking about. Preaching in front of your colleagues and your professors, depending on where you are. And it was a little bit of a shark tank when I went to seminary. I mean, people... If you didn't get your theology right, like it was, they were gonna, they were gonna let you know in no uncertain terms. And so I, I had sworn I would never put myself under that microscope. Well, guess who was preaching that Sunday, that Wednesday? So I had, I had, um, I mean, this is back in dial-up, right? Like I had to. So I'm, so I'm on my computer at home, and I'm writing my sermon, you know, and and I get done with the sermon. And I don't know, it's six or seven or eight o'clock at night, and. And I've been pretty disconnected that day from everything, and, and so I log in, AOL probably or something, and up flashes the Columbine Massacre. And I was like, what am I going to do now? We had interns at the church, the Lutheran church that served the area that the Columbine High School was in. We, were, we knew intimately people there. So it wasn't like here I was in Ohio and they were there and it was something I could keep at arm's length. And, and guess what we were doing that Wednesday morning? We were doing a, a jazz service. Like we had these incredible musicians who were just going to riff on the liturgy. And you know Lutherans love to sing the liturgy if they're, if they're really Lutheran at all. And a little shout out to Lutherans. And so we had this jazz liturgy plan. I mean it's going to be this upbeat amazing sort of thing that we'd never done before and I'm thinking what in the world has God done to me because it's all about me right like there are all these these horrible things happened but I preached and and I brought our community together God used that 
to help us navigate through that. I got asked to preach at the presbytery the one time I've been asked to preach at our presbytery meetings, and uh, thank you, Kenna Payne, for being the person who asked me to preach that, that day. And we were, again, we were, had this special service. We were down in, um, in sort of southeastern Virginia, right, I think, and we were at an event park, and we were outside, and it was going to be this amazing thing. And, and so I'm preparing my sermon the week before, and it's on a Tuesday, and guess what happened on the Sunday, the Pulse shooting? Because I'd sworn I would never preach in front of the presbytery. And so I led that service and preached about what had happened that day and a couple of days before. And, and as I would just think about those things, these things that have happened in our, in our society, in our world, like those things were uncommon. Columbine was a, like a wake-up call. And we went back to sleep. We're having mass shootings, not just every week, but multiple times a week now. That's been heavy on my heart this week. Because as I thought about my ministry here, I just thought about, well, did we, what have we done here? What have we tried to do? What have we made better? How have we helped? And sometimes, I'll, I'll just be real honest, sometimes it feels like Sisyphus. And if you don't know what Sisyphus gets condemned to roll a rock up a hill... And every time Sisyphus gets about to the top of the hill, the rock rolls over Sisyphus and it rolls back down to the bottom. Sisyphus is compelled to roll the rock back up the hill. It's not a great story. But sometimes it feels like that when you're in ministry because we're all human beings and we have our own wants and needs and desires. We're different people. One thing I'll tell you about, about, about pastors is um, those of us that are worth anything at all grieve deeply the hurts of our society and our community and especially within the, the folks that we are given charge of. When you hurt, I hurt. When you hurt, our family has often hurt. When people have left this community because of some leadership that I've provided or some leadership that the, that the session has provided, that hurt. That hurt. Because the ministry means something. And it means something to all of us, right? Clearly the sermon notes went out the window. Sorry, I am rambling a little bit. This is not... Not unlike me, but not like me. And so today, though, the, I mean, what I want to say is, is this. Well, I want to say a couple of things. One is, for those of us that are in this room who are seeking to follow Jesus, or at least seeking to figure out who Jesus might be for us, or whatever, we owe it to ourselves and our community to understand what the Scripture actually says about Jesus and about who He is and what He stands for. Because there are those people who claim to know the Scripture, who, who are saying things and doing things that do not represent the second person of the Trinity at all. I'm going to call out one case in point right now. Recently, I saw a video of 
a representative of, to Congress from Colorado, Lauren Boebert, who got up in front of a bunch of Christians and said, the Twitter trolls are talking about, well, would Jesus own an AR-15? An AR How many AR-15s would Jesus own? Well, clearly he didn't own enough to keep himself from being killed by the government. Direct quote from her. This is in direct contradiction to what Jesus did when one of his own disciples took a sword out and cut off the ear of one of the guards when they came to arrest him. He said, put it away, and he healed the ear of the guard of the people who were going to arrest him and put him to death. We have work to do because that's what people who don't know Jesus are hearing from people who claim to know Jesus. Is that somehow, somewhere, Jesus was supposed to be a violent Messiah. I mean, in some ways, that's what, that's what, that's what the Jews were expecting. The Jews were expecting a Messiah who was going to overthrow the Roman government. Jesus overthrew the Roman government in a very different way. We are given the opportunity and the grace and the Holy Spirit to speak truth to power in a way because of Jesus, not through violence. We should abhor violence as a means to an end perhaps to protect ourselves or to protect the very vulnerable, we may have to resort to that at certain times. I'm not saying that. But we have work to do. We owe it to ourselves to know the Scripture so deeply that we, that we begin to understand that we challenge each other with it, that we, that we gird each other with it, that we, that we seek to find the grace and the hope in it. Because the message, as it has throughout all of time, Gets easily gets convoluted to our human desires for power and for control. When Paul wrote these words in Galatians, he was writing to the, Galatia, the church in Galatia, and there were already factions in the, in the newly formed Christian church. There were already people who were saying, well, if you're going to be, if you're going to follow Jesus, you've got to be circumcised you got to follow the laws of the Jewish laws. you got to do all this. And there were others saying, no, we're, we're perfectly free in Christ. We don't have to follow anything. We can do whatever the heck we want. And Paul here is, is writing about that. And so he's dancing this very interesting line to try to bring it all together because he's, he's, he's trying to get a message across to all of the people that are there. And it feels like he's primarily talking to the Jewish folks in, in, in there, the ones who would say, you've got to be Jewish, you, the men need to be circumcised, all this sort of thing. Now, before faith came, we were imprisoned and guarded under the law until faith would be revealed. Now, this is a pretty strong statement because for them, the law was a gift and the law still is a gift to us. We look at the Old Testament and pieces of that that we, call, that we often call the law, it's a gift to us. It reveals to us our sin oftentimes. It opens us to show us where we, have, where, we have, where we have missed things, where we have served ourselves. Therefore, our law was our disciplinarian until Christ came so that we might be reckoned as righteous by faith. Because what Paul is saying is we cannot, by our, own, by our own following of the law or following of rules, gain salvation. 
We cannot earn our way with God. This is a very revolutionary kind of thing. But now the faith has come. We are no longer subject to a disciplinarian, though it still speaks to us. I will add that caveat. For in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. This was a revolutionary statement when you had a mixed group of people in the room. It's like the statement, which we didn't really follow through on in our documents, all men or people are created equal. Revolutionary kind of statement. And we knew we weren't practicing it in the United States of America. In, even in Galatia, I'm sure that they weren't, you know, Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians probably were not treated the same. But now that faith has come, we are no longer subject to a disciplinarian for his Christ Jesus. You are all children of God through faith. As many of you were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourself with Christ. There's no longer Jew or Greek, no longer slave or free. There's no longer male and female. For all of you are one in Christ. He's not saying that those, that those differences don't matter. He's not saying that diversity doesn't matter. But he's saying when we find ourselves in Christ... We are all beloved children. Even the person that I mentioned before, Warren. God loves her to the depth of her soul. Jesus gave his life to invite her into a new life, just like Jesus died for you and me and every other person that we hate or dislike very strongly. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise, is the revolutionary way of talking about this. Because, you know, you and I can't be heirs to the whatever fortune unless we're born into that family. We can't be heirs to the, you know, this sort of thing unless we're born into that family. Right here, Paul is saying, through Christ, we're all grafted in. Abraham was the one who received the, that first promise from God that, that you're going to be a blessing to the nations. I've often talked about that. We carry on that. He came to Abraham and he said, I'm going to bless you and you are going to be, a, not just for yourself, but so you can be a blessing to the nations. That is our legacy. And then in Christ Jesus, it just gets expanded even more. We can use whatever labels we want to put in here. They're no longer Jew or Greek, no longer slave or free, no longer male or female. Whatever labels you want to, we want to put on people, we put in that. There's no longer any of those. Not that diversity doesn't matter, but that we find ourselves all one in Christ. As the song says, now we all are chosen ones. And so I want to say this. Finally. One, remember that. In Christ, we all are chosen ones. Even the people that we just cannot listen to, have a hard time hearing, even in our own families. We all are chosen ones. And the second thing is, is many of you will attribute the, the beauty and the wonder of, of what's happened at Westminster, will attribute that in some ways to, to my leadership and Jennifer's, our family's leadership. What I want to say is it ain't me you were looking for. It ain't me you were looking for. If anything, I hope what I have done is pointed, like John the Baptist did, to Christ. He is the one who is worthy of our praise. He is the one who is worthy of our loyalty and allegiance. He is the one who is worthy of our love. And then, as 
we love Christ and know his love for us, we are able to understand the love that God has for all of us and for this creation and the hope that we can have even when it feels like we're pushing the rock up the hill one more time. Thank you for these 20 years and for this 21st Father's Day. You honor me and you bless me with your presence and your prayers and for the celebration that we're having today. Thank you for letting me completely ramble and go off script. Thank you for just letting me be me. May God's name be praised. Amen.